there's basically like 50 families in the world that control the world. Mm -hmm. And they set the game such that they'll allow people to make enough money so they don't revolt. Hey everyone, welcome to the first official episode of the FinTech at IU podcast, a podcast where we demystify financial technology, promote an entrepreneurial spirit, and talk about all things FinTech. Every Wednesday and Saturday, you'll hear from the top talent in the FinTech industry. Let's get started. Today, we're going to have a sit down with Professor Jerry Hayes, an esteemed professor at the Kelly School of Business. He teaches F317, which is entrepreneurial finance and venture capital. He's the founder and CEO of Dorio Venture Labs, but comes from a non-traditional background as he studied political science and law, and now he works a lot in the venture capital space. So I ask you, Professor Hayes, how exactly did that happen? Uh, Well, thanks for being here, for having me. Um, It's great to be here. Uh, So I I started off in political science and uh, got a fellowship with the governor's office back in 19... 91 with Evan Bayh. And that was a program where you just applied and there was, it was pretty competitive to get in, but I was fortunate to be one of 10 mm-hmm. uh, selected to that. And once you sort of get into that circle and you really perform, opportunities keep coming your way. So I ended up going to state headquarters to run a statewide campaign for Pam Carter, who ran for attorney general. She was the first African-American female to ever be elected to a statewide office, mm-hmm. which was pretty historical, yeah. happening here in Indiana, which was cool. And then I, I was offered opportunities to go work at the State House as a lobbyist, mm-hmm. and first for the governor's office and, and Department of Environmental Management, specifically on environmental issues. And then I went to the other side of the business, went to the private sector, and I was the environmental lobbyist for the Indiana Chamber. Mm-hmm. And I got a law degree in the evenings, and I always wanted as a kid to get a law degree because uh, my uncle was a lawyer in a small town in Illinois. So I achieved that, passed the bar, and I was uh, working for my latest company. was American Automobile Manufacturers Association. This is back in 98. That was a $30 million trade association mm-hmm. in uh, Washington, D.C., and I was heading all the lobbying for the Midwest. And just to give you some perspective, the head of the association was Andy Card, who was the first chief of staff to George Bush. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is before George yeah. Bush II was elected. So, uh-huh. um, But Daimler-Benz uh, bought Chrysler that year, mm-hmm. and they disbanded the $30 million trade association because <laughs> Ford and GM were like, we're not going to be working with Daimler-Benz. And so here I was. I just passed the bar. I'm not going to have a job in six months, and so what do I do? And I just made a decision like, you know, I think it's time to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I don't, okay. you know, I'm not, this isn't a lot okay. of fun. I'm going to I'm gonna like sort of take, you know, my, de- my destiny in my own hands. And so I just started an a Internet 1.0 company called Homia. And my vision was to use the Internet at the time, mm-hmm. the latest technology, yeah. to mm-hmm. essentially take – real estate agents out of the equation of a transaction mm-hmm. and take away the commission. So if you can think about a real uh, residential real estate mm-hmm. um, uh, agent, they would list your house for 6%. Mm-hmm. You'd sell the house a month later, and if it's a $300,000 home, you're paying $18,000 to the yeah. agent who may pay half of that to a buyer's agent. Yeah, That $18,000 represents a ton of equity for the homeowner. Mm-hmm. And so what I thought was, well, why couldn't you create the, the equivalent of an ECN for residential real estate yeah. where buyers just come to the site, they can look online, do a virtual tour, 
if they like it, they can schedule a, a, a showing with the, the owner, and then they come to us and we handle the transaction. Mm-hmm. And we went from zero, raised $165,000, went from zero to um, the 11th largest real estate company in Indianapolis by transactions, got up to $1.2 million in, in revenue. And um, my ego probably couldn't fit in Franklin <laughs> Hall because <laughs> I thought I had it. And, um, and I went out to, to raise venture capital here in the Midwest, and I just can't tell you how – I mean, venture capital is still here in the Midwest is slow capital compared to the West Coast. Yeah. But back then, they didn't even know what the internet was. And we'd, we'd, we'd get feedback like, well, well, I'd never not use a real estate agent. I'm like, well, you're not really my target demographic. Exactly. And then you start seeing how investors don't have imagination. They have their own biases. And if you don't fit into that particular bucket, you're not going to get funding. And that sort of sowed the seeds for where I am today. Because mm-hmm. back then, I'm just like, there's just got to be a better way to get capital more efficiently in the hands of founders who are doing really cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, the... Um, it was a confluence of things where the sort of there's a market crash in 2000 and then and then 9/11 hit and um, we never really recovered from that and ended up selling it to help you sell real estate back in 2003 and and so I did wasn't a big win uh, but then I was offered the opportunity to come down here and teach one class venture capital entrepreneur yeah. finance so I I, did, I started that and mm-hmm. now I've been with the university since 2004. I uh, started a food co- company with my brother. Yeah. We, we grew it to $15 million in revenue, and then I sold my portion out, out to a private equity buyer when they wanted to come in and do a recap. And I was, I was in that business for 12 years, and like, I, this is the perfect time for me. And so I recapped out, and then, then it allowed me to move the family down to Bloomington. And we've been down here since 2017. Mm-hmm. But in between them, we've, I've invested uh, probably now in 50 startups. So. Yeah been very, very active in the market, and I have portfolio companies all over the country. So you're a native of Indiana? Um, I was born in Illinois, but I've lived in Indiana most of my life. Chicagoland? Yes. DeKalb. DeKalb. Brian. My dad's from DeKalb. There you go. <laughs> born and raised. Okay. Well, I spent a lot of time in DeKalb because my grandfather, he actually lived to be 103. He just passed away a couple years ago. Oh. I'd go up to DeKalb three, four times a year and go hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that place. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm from the East Coast, so yeah. <laughs> I haven't been to DeKalb much uh, ever, but New I, I've heard good things. It, it's, it's, it's a cool little town. It's, there's, it's sleepy. There's not a lot going on, but. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like teaching a senior level class, but also like a, a pre-freshman level class also at X-170? Um, well, I think the interesting thing is when I started teaching back in 04, this is pre <coughs> – most people didn't have a laptop in class. So there was no smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, the internet was still sort of coming along. Um, I'd say the freshmen today are about at the same level as where the seniors were back in 2004 just mm-hmm. because of the, the adoption of technology and the access to information. Um, and so I like, I like the idea – of that, okay, they're coming in and their eyes are open and they're really sort of spiritually ready to start learning, Mm -hmm. to be able to be a part of that process to sort of open their eyes to opportunity that they may never would have thought about. Mm -hmm. And for me, venture is that one area that, you know, many people would never consider themselves, you know, know, someone who would ever consider venture. But um, so it's been a great opportunity for for me. What what is venture though? There's so many different definitions mm-hmm. of this word thrown out. I mean, I'm 
I can be like what you're working on. I can be a private individual and give money to a company mm-hmm. and get equity, or I can be a big firm like A16Z mm-hmm. that gives millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So who who is a venture capitalist and what is what is that? Sure. So venture probably you could say it's a subset of private capital. So you have the public markets where you can buy and sell stocks like Amazon. And that's it's been completely democratized so long as you have any amount of money you can you can trade. Mm-hmm. And with like Robinhood they made trading free. So they've really democratized the public markets. The Private capital markets have been very insular, very hard to get into, and it's usually been reserved for those who are, are, are wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, what an A, you know, A16Z does is they aggregate large institutional money into a fund, and they will, in, they will deploy that capital on behalf of the institutional investors so they can get exposure to the alpha of these high-growth, innovative companies with great potential for mm-hmm. huge exits. Um, and, and then... Uh, but venture venture capitalists will not invest at the beginning stages of a deal. They'll mm-hmm. they wait. You know, typically uh-huh. right now they want to see like a million dollars of revenue or five million dollars of revenue, and you're profitable. <laughs> like, time. hey, I can go to a bank, but no, I'll uh-huh. you know I'll give yeah. you a bunch of equity. How's that? Uh-huh. You know, that's what they want, right? Yeah. They want to steal second with their foot on first. Mm-hmm. Most do. Yeah. Um, but then you have to get these businesses started somehow. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of the continuum is you you have to start using your own resources, bootstrapping. Mm-hmm. Then you have to go to family and friends yeah. and then raise a little money just to prove a few things out, get a customer, get an yeah. MVP out, mm-hmm. and then make it attractive to high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, those would be, would be called accredited investors. Yeah. By the SEC terminology, you're, those individuals are, have a million dollars in net worth, net of their house, or they're making $200,000 or more mm-hmm. annually. Okay. The angel investors, and this is this is interesting, is that the average angel age is 57 years old. Wow. Okay, so most angels did not grow up with the internet. <laughs> they didn't grow up with a phone. Yeah, their their technology savviness is far different than what the young people's their their savviness is. They don't get it, do they? They don't get it. Yeah, they don't get it. Um, and then, and, and most angel investors cut their first check at the age of 45. Hmm. Okay, so what you have is a large group of individuals who have the money. They already have their wealth. They don't need to be well to be. They, they don't need to do this to build wealth. So this becomes more of an, an exercise in entertainment. They yeah. get to watch and say uh-huh. no, and yeah. and if they see something that's completely amazing, then they'll put their money in. Yeah. But otherwise, they just get entertained watching. You know, all of us entrepreneurs go up there and try to pitch them. Young people trying to go and, and do exactly, do in the world. and they okay. can sit back and punch holes and you know and and tear your business apart, right? And, and so you have this sort of, you know, uh, crazy marketplace where there's no real clear path to raise your capital mm-hmm. unless unless you come from Stanford, Harvard, or MIT. Mm-hmm. And then you've, you're in the club. And, and so what we have as an industry in the private capital markets is all the alpha is happening in the private capital markets. Yeah. The rich people traditionally, the only ones that have gotten to play in the private capital markets mm-hmm. And, um, and the rich now, uh, they, they control this not only by running the venture funds because 60% of all VCs are coming from those three schools. 80% are old white men like mm-hmm. me, right? So they, they control that whole $250 billion market, mm-hmm. okay? And, and then uh, by SEC rules, you have to be a millionaire to invest you know, in Reg D offerings. Mm-hmm. And then 
you're left with to start with family and friends. But if you're not rich, your family's not rich, and you don't have rich friends, then you can't even form capital to get your business off the ground. So we have this massive, unequal system where the rich get to play in this space and gain all the alpha, and everyone else is basically told to shut up and sit on the sidelines and watch. Don't kick rocks. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I've reached a point in my life where I'm going to devote the rest of my life to this problem. Because it absolutely has to change, considering if you want to prognosticate about what the future looks like, what the, what does the future look like? Mm-hmm. When you see AI coming in and uh, machine learning essentially doing the tasks of what you know white-collar workers traditionally used to do, right? Mm-hmm. We're no longer in the farms. We're no longer in the plants. Now we're no longer going to be running you know, these companies through middle management. Yeah. That's all going to be automated. How and where are the opportunities for you to build wealth? Yeah. It's ownership. Yeah. And and if we don't make ownership available to young people, you know, to be, to have a piece of these companies that are um, going to completely disrupt the way we do business and think about business, we're doing our middle class a massive disservice. Mm-hmm. So l- let's say Drew. Drew has $20,000 right now, and he wants to go and invest in a startup. Can he do that? No. Yeah. No. If I mean, you, if the company is doing a Reg D offering and they're going to ask you for your, uh, your income and or your net worth, if you don't fit that definition of an accredited investor, they cannot legally take your money. So I wanted to ask about, you know, you talked about the democratization now. Has has this these kind of trends changed since when you started investing in VC earlier when the internet wasn't really a thing to now? Has it still been the majority rich control everything? Or are you seeing com- some of those groups starting to poke through or is that still just the standard? We are seeing early stages of that. There used to be sort of in the, the crypto world, the DAOs mm-hmm. and sort of these decentralized ways of trying to allocate capital. We're seeing now... Reg CF, which was a new law passed in 2017 by the SEC that allows we funders, start engines, and those platforms to exist. Um, so that's a that's a positive sign. Um, the, the 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 broader challenge that we have is um, there's a lot of grifting that happens on those Reg CF platforms, and so 90% of the deals. And we've studied this market now for the last year. Um, there's a lot of companies that just you just do not want to invest, but mm-hmm. but and, and what they do is they're training people to be a narrative investor, which means they just buy a story for five minutes and yes. they decide to put the money in. Mm-hmm. And venture is a it's a principled fundamental investor. You have to be principled and you have to really understand mm-hmm. the nuances of a deal um, to to make really smart venture decisions. So what we're doing is setting up a lot of people to fail and lose their money. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no long tail in that. We had a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek conversation together where, where you said the majority of people in these markets don't even know what the hell they're doing. It's true. How, how do you combat that? How do you, you don't need to pass an exam to be an angel investor or a VC. Should you have to? Yes. Why do you think that? Um, because if you would take a look at the failure rates that happen in venture, mm-hmm. you can just say, oh, well, that's just because you know 90% of all deals fail. No, it's because um, you don't want to do the work the, the fundamental work of really, uh, you know, working on these portfolios or picking the right portfolio companies um, and and sort of distancing yourself from your own personal biases and your own networks to to really uh, build a portfolio. And um, 
that can only happen if you really understand the economics of venture. And so um, like, let me give you a couple of examples of this, okay? You go to any angel group out there, and I can almost guarantee that 20% of the angel investors are doing 80% of the, of the investing. Everyone else is sitting back and, and you know, uh, I, waiting for one deal to put like 50K into it. Mm-hmm. And they're almost guaranteed to lose as opposed to, okay, my budget this year is $20,000. I'm going to put $2,000 into 10 deals. And so as I see 25, 30 deals this year, then, you know, I'm going to, does this particular deal pass my criteria? Does it meet my strategy? And if it does, you put the money in. And then at that point, you know, you've, you've at least selected a portfolio that meets the criteria of what a, a promising, you know, upstart company would be. Mm-hmm. Um, what most people do is just want to sit back and, and again, just they want to be like super into one particular deal and be that picker. But if you're not broad, broadly diversified in this market, then that your chances of losing all your money are pretty high. Well, but at the same time, I'm a little concerned about that because we already talk about government overreach mm-hmm. and. If we add another layer of this where we stop people from getting into venture if they have to pass this exam, that exam can be a huge damper on private individuals specifically like you want to. Well, I didn't say the government should impose an exam. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, think people should, I, I think people should be well prepared to engage in the private capital markets. Mm-hmm. We're, we've issued, Dorio Venture Labs, we've issued – uh, an exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, our first cohort starts next week. We have 50 VCs and angels around the country that are, are that are taking this exam, and and it's not a course. It's here. Here's a hundred. Here's a hundred question exam, and if you can pass 70 percent or better, then you can get certified QAI as a signal out to the market that you kind of know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We, to the extent that we wanted government intervention on this, is we've asked the SEC to approve this exam to allow more people into the market. Mm-hmm. Not not prevent people who have a bunch of money not to join the market. Do do companies care though? They don't. Companies just care about the money. At the end of the day, do they care if this person actually knows what the hell they're doing versus this person wants to give me money? Well, and that's the thing. You know, founders who only care about the money aren't there to build a business. And what we really need to do is find find those companies and fund those companies that they're really out to build a, a, a business and. You know, money comes with strings attached, and and those are essentially your business partners at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Yes, you want your business partners to know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Of course, you do. Yeah. Right. Um, and if you, there are so many horror stories where people have taken money from people that they that they, you know their counterparty doesn't really know what they're doing, and they make the founders' lives miserable. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, we need symbiotic relationships between the capital and, and the founders. And we, we have this what's it's, we have this sort of notion now that every VC should be founder friendly. And, you know, that's not necessarily the right words I would use to be founder friendly. I mean, it's not just, hey, we'll give you the money and we'll let you run and have give you sort of a wide berth to go build this thing. We are manufacturing companies and. There, and and so this is a team effort. And if you look at all the successful VCs that are out there, they've been very hands-on, um, supportive of the founders, but yet very hands-on in decision makings in the boardrooms, asking the right questions, making sure that the train stays on the tracks. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not, 
you give, you know, you could go out here and look at the room and you give uh, uh, 100 people in this room a million dollars and see what happens a year from now. Some are going to be worth like 25 million and some are not going to have any money. Yeah. Right. So So money isn't the only issue. How do you find those those founders that how do you discern the founders that aren't going to be able to manage that money wisely? Are there certain qualities or or you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you can't you, you can't predict you know, any outcome with any investment that you make. But clearly, you know, a couple of easy questions you can ask is why are you building this business, mm-hmm. right? And if you're building this business because you want to be a founder or you, you want to make investors a, a lot of money, yeah. then chances are that business is probably going to fail. So passion? Well, it, it's, it, it's, it's um, what, is, what is truly your mission here? What are you mm-hmm. trying to accomplish? Like when I say with, with my mission with Dorio, yeah. Um, I may not make a, a nickel at the end, end of the day. My mission is we need to um, democratize and make the, the private capital markets fair and more equal for a larger swath of people mm-hmm. if we are going to preserve a balance of wealth in this, in this country. Yeah. So a purpose Pur- instead of a so, so purpose. And then the second question is, okay, what steps have you taken up to this point to realize that purpose? Yeah. And if you're talking about what you want to do versus what you've done, mm. then it's probably not a good bet to make. So that's a great point about purpose. And it's something that every organization needs to have. And I almost wonder if there's been any um, studies done that shows a relationship between more of a quantitative metric and the success of a company. Because we have millions of data points on companies. There's about 300 million uh, registered organizations in the U.S. So we have tons of data points. Has anyone ever run like a regression analysis and found out what the most telling quantitative things are for successful company? Not that I'm aware of. Not yeah. that I've seen, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So maybe someone here could do research like that. And Perhaps. Compile a list. Of the, yeah. So the challenge is you can study the public mar- the public markets all day long because all of the information you get, you know, all the filings um, and, and the, the disclosures, and you can obviously measure and track performance. Um, in the private capital markets, that information is really hard to get to, and the, the ones who are collecting that are guarding it. I mean, for example, if you want access to PitchBook, it's 25000 a year. Wow. And they don't offer a discount to, like, a professor to be able to do any sort of that, yeah. any sort of research. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, it's very closed off and wow. guarded and mm-hmm. very expensive. So it's, it's risky to try to disrupt this industry, too. So you're taking a major risk by doing something like this. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What does that entail? Um, well, that you I can talk about. Well, I, I, I can say <laughs> this. I, I don't I don't see my competitor, the VCs. I don't see my competitor, the angel investors. My biggest challenge is this one fundamental issue that I see in particular with young people. OK, and while I'm, I'm going to speak to young people right now about mm-hmm. uh, in this regard is that you have 30 to 40 years of wealth building ahead of you and and what uh, most people have been conditioned or trained by society is I call them the two C's. Mm-hmm. They've been trained to be consumers. Yes. Okay. And what 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 do you what's the one thing that happens when you consume something? What's the one sort of output of that? What do you think, Drew? You just keep consuming things. Well, I mean, instant gratification. We ego. were talking about this, yeah, right? Ego. Right. You're, you, it's a dopamine hit. You're, yes. So you, we are training young people to be consumers 
to get the dopamine hit on a number of different levels, yeah. okay? When we should be training young people, what I call the other C is to cultivate. Cultivate. Right? And if we don't train young people to be cultivators, and so if you're a founder, you have to cultivate your, de- your, your business over a long period of time because mm-hmm. it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. If you are an investor and people go, well, I'll just wait until I'm a millionaire before I start investing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're going to wait until you're 45 years old. Mm-hmm. Right to start investing in venture when you're going to miss out on AI, you're going to well, miss out on all of these technologies that are going to disrupt all these companies, and you're not willing to put in 25 bucks yeah. versus buying a burrito the, to to like to turn that 25 dollars into potentially twenty five thousand dollars. The thing is, the first million is the hardest freaking thing to do. Once you have a million dollars, it grows much faster from there. That's the thing. Well, I don't know. Do you have experience with that? I, I don't, but I, I, I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen things where, where everyone, every single founder that I've listened to on podcasts talks about how their first million was the most challenging because getting to that scale of a million dollars is difficult. And it's a lot of lifestyle choices. You have to save up salary. You have to invest that into public equities because you can't do private equity yet. Or start a company yeah. and exit a company. But it's hard. It sucks. Well, I mean, look, if we got everything you wanted all day long, yeah. your life, within 24 hours, you're like, oh, please, mm-hmm. give me a surprise, a button that just says surprise me. So you uh-huh. press it and then something <laughs> crazy happens. Because what would life be if you didn't have to, like, Work. go through a journey and, 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 and go through the ups and downs? I mean, the, the whole purpose of being here in a lot of ways is to, to discover who we really are. Mm-hmm. Right, not, not not just to get a job and mm-hmm. just to, you know it's to discover yeah. and you can't discover who you are until you put your you know put yourself in positions of vulnerability mm-hmm. as an investor or as a founder or yeah. anything else that you're doing. That's a great point because a lot of people there's like an ongoing joke that you know colleges you're paying fifty thousand dollars a year to drink you know cheap beer and and you know have you know party all the time but no it's actually a pretty soul searching mission i would say i don't know have you had experience with this have you, uh, like what what kind of revelations have you had in college <laughs> i mean i i'm not sure actually yeah. that's uh you know i'm i'm doing this i'm trying to find my purpose yeah. while i'm doing this now and i wanted to touch on your point about getting that first million i i feel like a lot of that is the struggles and once you get that first million, you've gone through the struggles, you've gone through the failures, and then you know how to succeed after getting that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I wanted to ask you, Professor Hayes, how how do you cultivate, you know, someone who is going to, um, what was the other C you said? Consume. The other one. Oh, cultivate. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you get that mindset? I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can introduce that idea of cultivation, which is not instant gratification, which is, yeah. you know, steps you're taking today, you're not going to see. You're, yeah. it, 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 and, and it's almost like, okay, so if you plant a seed in the ground, mm-hmm. if you dig up that seed immediately after planting it, what's going to happen? Well, you have yeah. nothing. Yeah. You have a seed. That's what we're doing right. here. That's what, that's what FinTech at IU is about. Yeah. We, were, we were rejected from the Kelly School. I mean, things have not been smooth sailing for us, mm-hmm. but we know that by doing this, by having our weekly meeting, by teaching our members Python and things that are going to help them in the real world so they don't think that Excel is the only data modeling tool there is. Mm-hmm. Excel is a really shitty data modeling tool. There's so many better ones out there. <laughs> and we're teaching our members things that other people don't know about. We're, Dr. Dokulich came yep. to our meeting and he told us about how every single person when you're applying for a job, you should have a, your own domain. 
So you would have jerryhayes.com. Mm -hmm. And that's valuable because you get to control a narrative now. And we're doing all this stuff because we think that it's going to earn a, everyone a return in the future because job markets, uh, colleges have become so incredibly competitive now that you actually have to do something to stand out. I don't know if you've seen LinkedIn where there are thousands of applications for one job and you have to stand out and be that one person. We had an entire meeting about this and it's just uh, the way you have to stand out now is so much more difficult with technology. So, and, and let's use this as an example. Um, you get turned down by Kelly, yeah. uh, roadblock, roadblock here, roadblock there. Now you have to go on, you're going to teach people on your own. Mm -hmm. You're doing this podcast. Why are you doing all that? You're not getting any, you're not getting paid. No. But you're purpose driven. Yeah. Right? So, Ergo, this is this is what you look for in an investor, as an investor, mm -hmm. into young uh, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? You're driven by something bigger than an immediate return. Yeah, we we think that the return in the future is going to be a more tech-forward experience. But I would argue you can't worry about what that return is. No, don't worry about the outcome. No, all you can do is what you can do, mm -hmm. and and so you know, I would say this: you have to really be careful about try to optimize for an outcome because yeah. many of those outcomes are, are, are manufactured in your, in your head mm -hmm. and they may even be too small. <laughs> Literally. That's I mean, you scary. could, you could be thinking too small. That's scary. Right. So <laughs> if you think about, okay, you know, uh, when you want to leave a legacy, when you're done here at IU, what legacy do you want to le leave? Mm -hmm. Is that, okay, we have this program, we have this program, we have this program, right? But what that becomes in is a platform for people after you to come in and take advantage of those opportunities yeah. that will pro propel them, you know, to the to levels that they want to go to. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the true impact that happens. Yeah. I, I have a really good friend that works at Northern Trust now. Her name is Victoria. And she, she mentioned that she was, or she was a president of the finance society um, at Montclair State University. So she state school. Mm -hmm. And she said that she has people reaching out to her who are in school still, and they're saying, hey, how do I do well in, in the job search? So she's like kind of a role model for a lot of people, and, and that's what we want to be for people too because there's no one teaching the things that we teach our members right now anywhere. Yeah, and it's hard, isn't it? You, yeah. you have to make up the rule book. Yeah. So, which is pretty cool but also pretty frightening. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I, there hasn't been a single meeting that I've walked away from where I felt like I did a, a fantastic job. I feel stupid every day because I'm still learning. Yeah. Well, imposter syndrome never ends. No. I still feel like an imposter sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. news for you. But I think the important thing is, and I'll go back to this point, but I'll say it a little bit differently. You can never look at yourself through the eyes of other people. Mm -hmm. It's none of your business. Yes. Right? You just can't. All you can do is like you're setting out to achieve the things that you need to achieve because these mm -hmm. things need to happen in order for this organization to have impact. Everyone around you mm -hmm. are gonna—they're—they're they're gonna say no. Mm -hmm. They're gonna say no. They're gonna say no until yeah. they actually start seeing those shoots out of the ground. They don't yes. see the roots; they no. see the shoots out of the ground. And when they see the shoots and they start seeing the fruit being born, then they're all gonna come flocking. But that's—that's that's hard because as a president of a student organization, I have to care about what other people think. Because without members, I—I wouldn't—we wouldn't have an org. That's well, true. I mean, of course you need members. Yeah. But. Um, that's a that's just a, yeah. you know a data point that, that's just something that you're optimizing for yeah. is to get members right, yeah. just like 
I'm going to need a lot of people yeah. who would be willing to sort of migrate away from this consumerism mentality to a cultivation mentality. Yeah. But I also know that if I can get those folks to migrate over, uh, the impact of wealth w within that group will be immeasurable, mm -hmm. right? And so that's yeah. the kind of same thing that you guys are going through. Mm -hmm. So with the consumerism piece, what do you think has – cultivated that? Is it just advertising? And it's Because I notice it now that you bring it up. This is not something I, yeah. I, I would ever think about. And I'm a victim of that as well. Yeah. I mean, you I don't think I about lie. this stuff yeah. in your day to day life. But when you when you talk about it, you realize, oh, shit, like some of the stuff that I've been doing in my life is for just to consume and look good and, and care about other people's opinion. Right. And but so I, I heard this once, and I won't say the source, and I don't know if this is complete, you know, garbage, but I'll say it here, mm -hmm. and it sounds a little conspiracy, <laughs> is that there's basically like 50 families in the world that control the world, mm -hmm. and they set yeah. the game such that they'll allow people to make enough money so they don't revolt. Mm -hmm. And so at higher levels, you incre incrementally, or in some cases, if you're at the top, you make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is this hierarchy, right? And... And of course, the ones at the top don't want anything disrupted. So if you take, for example, like um, take any – take Jamie Dimon for, for Chase, okay? I don't know what he makes a year. 35, 50 million bucks. I don't know. Who cares? Who cares, right? It's just ridiculous amounts of money. Mm -hmm. They would rather pull someone from Kelly who is so damn smart because – and pay them – We'll pay you the quick, you know, we'll, we'll pay you a $50,000 signing bonus and we'll pay you 125 a year and pay you 100% bonus in a year from now because th they know that that person will produce $5 million of, of, value. of value for the organization, which all of that gets captured at the very top. Uh -huh. It does not get captured at the bottom. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Yes. So these large companies want people to want the nice cars, the nice watches and all of that and to be consumers – because if you've got this desire that you want to consume and you want to have all these things, you need the, you need the, the bank to do it. Yeah. And so they've got a system to supply the bank to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a price to be paid for that. Is it even worth working for a big company now? I mean, should you just start your own thing and, and get your own equity? I think it's a great symbiotic relationship to go work for a big company for a couple of years because you will learn a lot. Just, just like talking about going to school. Mm -hmm. Okay, you may not learn everything you want to learn in these classes, but what are you guys learning starting this organization? How to how to deal with people. That's how to deal thing. with people, how Dealing to build something from scratch, how, how to, to build how consensus. To deal with no. Right. Deal with no. Right. All of these things that are going to be pervasive in life if you ever try to trailblaze. Uh -huh. Okay? So you're learning those lessons now. So that's a huge value that you're getting out of being mm -hmm. at the university setting, but it's low risk. Yeah. Right? Um and then, and then, so when you get into the work work world, I I tell everyone, you know, I give them two bits of advice. If you're comfortable going into the large organizations, go there, milk everything you can from those organizations, learn as much as you can, build as yeah. much a great network, right? Be the best, be the absolute best that you can be, mm -hmm. because that's going to train you to to sort of have that ethic going forward. Uh -huh. um, and if you don't know what you want to do and you don't want to work there, I'd say then go out to San Francisco and just start meeting people yeah. and go work for a startup and go see that craziness. But, you know, you, you should be, again, going back to that word, cultivating your future today mm -hmm. 
by wherever you go, you're investing mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. right? And and then and so it's there's an old adage, right? Easy day, hard life, mm-hmm. or hard day, easy yeah. life. Wow. Right. Yeah. And most people choose the easy life, the easy day, and the hard life, hard life. and versus the hard days, mm-hmm. easy life. That applies to everything. Mm-hmm. Your health. Everything. Your, your health is at the pinnacle of of your hierarchy of needs. If you don't have health, you don't have. You can't think of the well, QAI certification. Me, you know, yeah, health, exactly. Right? Well, let, let, me, let me. You're dead. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you. What is the one thing you must have right now? Air. Air. Water. Right. So start. Water, if I take away your air for for five minutes, you're done. Yeah. Right. So why aren't we investing in clean air in this world? Right. What do we right after that water? You go three days without water, you're dead. You're dead. Why aren't we investing in water and making sure that our waters are, are clean, right, yeah. for consumption, right? And then and then food, and then but that all those three components will then build into our mm-hmm. our a healthy body, yeah. right? We have sort of this perverse view of the world that those things are always just going to be there, mm-hmm. and we can just do whatever we want to sort of destroy the world, yeah. and that will always we'll take that for granted. But again, mm-hmm. I take away your air. Mm-hmm. For five minutes, I guarantee you, you don't. It doesn't make a difference how many millions of dollars you have in the no, bank. No, doesn't matter. No, right? Well, maybe if they take away the air, you'll still have some plaque in the ground that says that has your name on it, or they'll name a street after you. In and this, then what? In this world that has no air, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. So, is it? I almost think it's thinking a little in the future now. Mm-hmm. But when I'm old, and if I have money, is it worth dying with that money? Should I just give it out? Um, Let other people use it. Um, so, I mean, that's obviously a, a personal decision. I think what I always say, because I do a lecture on money, yeah. um, I think it's probably the most important subject matter because we all operate in a lot of ways thinking that money is the number one mm-hmm. consideration in everything we do in our, yeah. our lives. The real question is, why do you need the money? Do, mm-hmm. do you need the money for the air? Do you need money for the water, for the food, mm-hmm. for the shelter? I mean, you can live. You could live. Modestly for fifty thousand a year. Yeah. Right. You may not be living in New York, no. but you can live in DeKalb, Illinois, for fifty thousand a year. <laughs> right. But you see what I'm saying is that you 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 know you don't. That's just lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if if you're wanting to make money because you want to keep increasing a lifestyle, um, and then you're not investing, you know, on any of the things that truly matter, like mm-hmm. your health. Yeah. Your relationships, your family, your friends, and you're leaving all that over there, and you're just focusing on increasing your lifestyle. You won't have that. You won't be sharing that money with anyone because no. no one and anyone who wants to be in your presence is because they just want your money or your power. Yeah. And so um, there is a huge trade-off when you just consider money as just the only concern. The only thing. So. If you have a plan for the money, like if you if you want to make a lot of money because you need uh, your mom needs surgery and it costs one hundred fifty thousand for that surgery, she doesn't have health insurance, whatever. I need those are tactical reasons why you would need to earn money for. Yeah. But if it's just to sort of self indulge and be a consumer and, and be a consumer, yeah. uh, I can always tell you that there's always someone with more money. And yeah. <laughs> you can't play that game. <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, there's this, there's this ongoing movement that people just say, money's freaking fake. It doesn't even exist if you think about it because the, the Fed just prints whatever. Uh, the, whatever the didn't Elon want. Musk just claim that yeah. in a Twitter feed? Uh, yeah. <laughs> on X, excuse me. Yeah, yeah on, on X, yeah. Well, on I think Twitter. it's I, – I, I mean it's all backed by the full faith and credit of the United States and um, 
What does that mean? What does it mean? If we are we are now around thirty five trillion in debt, yeah. And I think I don't think people kind of understand that in nineteen eighty we're at four hundred billion dollars of debt. Yeah, four hundred billion of debt. Mm-hmm. After eight years of cutting taxes and increasing spending yeah. for defense, we had this prosperous nineteen eighties. We got to four trillion dollars of debt. We went from four hundred billion to four trillion, and then we ten x that again. And, and then in 2000, we actually stayed around $4 trillion. Interestingly enough, during the Clinton administration, we never really increased the debt. But then we, 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 we doubled it in eight years again with George Bush II. And Obama, you know, the administration, they inherited the 2008 financial crisis. So we print a bunch of more money and take on a bunch more debt. So what we've done is we've consumed to keep an economy going yeah. versus having to take the, the hard medicine to mm-hmm. right the ship. And ultimately, you know, I don't know what that number looks like. And I talked to the CEO of BlackRock Asia when I was in Singapore um, mm-hmm. last last year, and about this. I said, "How long does the U.S. the U.S. dollar have as a reserve currency in the world?" And he, in his estimation, somewhere between eight and ten years. Yeah. Okay, he doesn't he doesn't believe Bitcoin's going to replace that. He doesn't necessarily know which um, fiat currency would replace that. But the only thing that's holding this together is that he said the total amount of assets the United States has, private and public, is somewhere around, you know, $150 trillion wow. or some, something like that. And I said, well, what about just if you take away all the, all the, the private companies and you take away all of the personal assets, what does the U.S. have in assets? And he goes, they haven't really done that study, but he was kind of puzzled by the question, like, well, what are you giving away to settle a debt? Uh-huh. At that, are you just going to start taking businesses and like, are you going to just take Google and just give it away to China? What are you going to do to pay uh-huh. the debts? The minute we say we can't pay a debt is a minute that there's no longer everything crumbles. There's no longer faith in the U.S. dollar, yeah. and then it's no longer safe to hold the U.S. dollar. And if we're no longer the reserve currency of the world, then we've been relegated to you know. Yeah. a very different status in the world. And we're already seeing a little bit of this. We, we talked about it at our meeting yesterday. We always uh, set aside the first 10 minutes for current events. Mm-hmm. The 10-year hit 485 bips mm-hmm. last night, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it shows that the cracks are starting to show already. Mm-hmm. And the yield curve is starting to uninvert already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every single recession, if you look at Fred data, um, started when the yield curve finally uninverted. Mm-hmm. So it's inverted, the yield curve's inverted, no recession. People are like, oh, soft landing, soft landing, soft landing. And then the yield curve rapidly uninverts, and then we actually get the recession. Yeah. So it, it's scary. And, you know, in particular, I mean, y- young people probably aren't really paying all that much attention. I think yeah. you guys are more so than, than most. But um, there, there's just a lot of uh, fundamental headwinds that we're facing. Mm-hmm. And, um Again, and I think we do have to have a cultural shift in the United States mm-hmm. if we are going to remain, you know, where we are in terms of our status uh, in the world. It's um, so you yeah. think it's the culture that the world is losing the the American culture that the world is losing faith in that the American dollar is going to be. No, I think so. People still look to the United States because we are the land of entrepreneurship. Yeah. If you can't get into this country, you do – if you want to work hard, you do have a shot to have a better life, yeah. Yeah. relatively speaking, to most other places in the world. Mm-hmm. That part, that story still holds true. It's the – how we use our currency 
essentially globally as a weapon to control countries, to control trade agreements. All, yeah. it, that all goes away if we're not the reserve currency. Yeah. The U.S. Uh, defense spending is ridiculous. It is. It's bordering on a billion dollars a year. Or trillion. Or, excuse me, yeah, a trillion, a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then we, we see stories that the government loses an F-35. Yeah. Did, you, did you see that? Yes. And, you know, a stealth, a stealth bomber that can't fly in the rain, you know, just these insane. <laughs> I, I mean, and um, the thing is, it's, it's kind of fascinating the way the military spending works, because if the military doesn't use all the money that Congress allots them, Congress is going to be like, oh, you don't need this. That's exactly so they're, right. So they're incentivized to spend all this money that we don't have. Yes. And your tax dollars are going toward that. Yes. So as a young person, that pisses me off. What, it should. What What can I do about that? Congress Congressmen don't care. I, I there has been such a so he, this is why I left lobbying and this was Indiana. Okay, um, nothing ever got done, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't be in a place or a space where every year you talk about the same issues over and over again. But the special interests were so aligned to keep the status quo that nothing ever gets done. And I cannot imagine the scale at which this happens in Washington, D.C. And, you know, a couple of changes and a a little tweak in a law where now you can aggregate millions and billions of dollars of 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 campaign pledges and support to candidates without having to disclose where that money came from has now allowed all this dark money into politics that's unaccounted for. And we don't know what back-channel deals are happening in terms of what legislators tr- – they're not really loyal to their constituents. They're yeah. loyal to the money. the money, right? If you if you run for senator in the state of Indiana, I think if you get elected you know, U.S. senator, I, I, think you're, I think the number is like $17 million you need to raise between now and the next election cycle or whatever that six-year you – know, when the election cycle starts. That translates into like $35,000 a day or something. Mm-hmm. Where do you get that money? You're not getting that from your constituency. No. You're getting that from dark money, special interests that are driving an agenda, mm-hmm. and you need to be beholden to that agenda. And uh, um, I, I would say there should be anarchy amongst young people. There should be – very active in politics. They should be out canvassing door to door, knocking on doors, spotlighting who these candidates are mm-hmm. and taking an activist, activist approach. But most people want everyone else to do the work. Professor Hayes, it's been very awesome having you and absolutely great insights about everything from government to, to law to venture to the Kelly School itself. We do this with every single guest we bring on. Our main audience is students at Indiana University. And for those, of, for those of you out there that might have zoned out or didn't exactly catch everything that we talked about, Professor Hayes, what's one actionable step that someone who's listening today can take as a student that would put them in a really awesome position going forward? I think we sort of answered it. Stop consuming and start cultivating. And take a look at your actions every day. Am I, is this something I'm consuming or is this something I'm cultivating? Yeah. Awesome. Simple as that, really. Yeah. That's all we have. (laughs) Once again, uh, thank you to the IU Media School for allowing us to use their spaces. Uh, Thank you to Professor Hayes, obviously, for being an esteemed guest today. And thank you to Dr. Dokulich and Dr. Monaco for their support uh, in in helping us get this off the ground and and really cultivate uh, an entrepreneurial spirit here at the 
uh, Indiana University. Thanks Thanks thank so you to James and all the podcast team who do all the hard work and to make this happen. Uh-huh. Because all of us are very grateful, and I'm excited for this episode. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys.